yeah, these droids. About three or four seasons. They're up for sale if you want them. Uh-huh. You don't need to see his identification. I didn't ask to see his identification. These are not the droids you're looking for. Who said we were looking for droids? He can go about his business. All right, fine. He can go about his business. Now answer my partner's question. We can go about our business. What are you doing with your hands? Business. Come on, old-timer. Just settle down. Move along. All right, all right. Move along, move along. What the hell is that? Old, that's old Ben. He's crazier than a shithouse womp rat. Uh, anyway, check out what I got in the mail from Jed's Toy Hut. Oh, man. That's a Phantom Menace electronic battle droid blaster rifle. Has electronic light and sound, light-up barrel and weapon sounds for the movies, light-up laser action, targeting scope, realistic movie styling, made by Hasbro and long out of production, and requires two AA batteries. But you took it out of the package. I, I like playing with my stuff, but if you force-strangled your inner child and want to keep everything op- unopened, fine. Jet's Toy Hut goes above and beyond to get it to you in tip-top shape. Seven box sizes, hand-packed, and they use whatever it takes to make sure your item never moves. That's awesome. Actually, I think those were the droids we were looking for. What? Hey! Halt! Or shoot! Run blaster, man. Toyhut.com. All too easy. Sometimes a cigar is just an assassination attempt. I'm Joe Fulgham. You say Grenada, I say Granada, let's call the Cold War off. I'm Kevin Leeson. Oh, I need a morale boost. Ooh, let's nuke the moon. I'm Torn Atkinson. You haven't been to a party till you've been to a CIA Christmas party. I'm Alan Newell, and this is Caustic Soda. To our interns, Corey Sleep is Awesome Emerson, Karen W., and Raymond W. I didn't get permission to give them out their full names. And we have a live show at VCon, which is the last weekend of September. Now you tell me. Yeah. <laughs> but enough of this bullshit. That's not bullshit. I love our live shows. Let's get to the Cold War. Our special guest, returning from the Burns episode, is Alan Newell. Oh. Hello. So fire and cold. This is the fire po- and cold. The, the <laughs> podcast of Fire and Ice. He yep. keeps the hot side hot and the cold side cold. He's like covering the, all the angles. This is the McDLT right. of podcasts? Is yes. that what you're saying? Yeah. Is that what it was called? DLT? Mm-hmm. It was indeed. What does the D stand for? A McDonald's. That's, lettuce and tomato. That's ridiculous. I thought it would be an MLT. The, that would be a mutton lettuce and tomatoes, as we learned from Princess Bride. <laughs> Muc, yeah, oh, that's right. McLT. And the mutton is nice and lean. The Cold War, often dated 1947 to 1991, was a sustained state of political and military tension between the powers of the Western world, led by the U.S. and its NATO allies, and the communist world, led by Russia, its satellite states and allies. And satellite states meant people that crushed under its boot heel. Uh, yeah, we can get into that. <laughs> or, bu- or bought off. But Depends on which side you're talking about for that. Yeah, but there were some countries <laughs> that were crushed under its boot heel. And some that were crushed under the American boot heel. True, absolutely. There was a lot of crushing in boot heels. <laughs> yeah. 
This began after the success of their temporary wartime alliance against Nazi Germany, leaving the USSR and the U.S. as two superpowers with profound economic and political differences. The Soviet Union created the Eastern Bloc, with the Eastern European countries occupied maintaining, maintaining these as satellite states. So what are some of these satellite states? Well, the- Sputnik was a satellite state, wasn't it? It was a state of satellite. Oh, <laughs> well, what about the Georgia satellites? Were they one of the uh, satellite states? Am I well, am I in the right place? I Ge- think I, uh... Georgia was a satellite, wasn't it? But Czechoslovakia was one of them, maybe. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Romania, right? Hungary, the Eastern European, Latvia, Estonia, oh, Lithuania, okay. right? The Balkans, right? Mm-hmm. The Cold War was so named as it never featured direct military action, since both sides possessed nuclear weapons, and because their use would probably guarantee their mutual assured destruction or mad. (laughs) Cycles of relative calm would be followed by high tension, which could have led to war. The most tense include, you can agree or disagree, maybe maybe let's do this on a 1 to 10 scale. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. A, a Cold War scale? Yeah. A cold, uh, with with of 10 Fugini. being like nuclear holocaust? Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Let's do that. So, okay, 10 is so, clear. So there won't be any tens. So it only goes up to 9. Instead okay. of the Fujita scale, it's the Coldita scale? It's like a DEFCON scale. The Ooh. Berlin blockade? Well, in fitting with my knowledge of history, I'm just going to bring up my dice roller. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, that that was a six, according to my D10. I, I give uh-huh. it a seven and a half. Oh, look at that. The dice yeah. is yeah, pretty I, I, I got to go with the seven. Kevin, you have some yeah. history knowledge. A, a, a little history knowledge, yeah. Uh, the Korean War? Nine. The, the dice yeah. agrees. The dice says nine. Oh, really? I wouldn't MacArthur, have that MacArthur, his plan included nuclear weapons mm. from, from the get-go. He had to be relieved of his command by Truman. Because Truman went, no, we're not using nuclear weapons. I'm sorry. I and that they, I did not oh, no, was not aware of. Yeah. All I know, if Hollywood has taught me anything, yeah. the Korean War was hilarious. <laughs> at least in and around these surgical hospitals, it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a good time. But also modeling at points. Yeah, yeah. In the finale, perhaps. <laughs> uh, the Suez Crisis, 1956. The dice say five. I give it a six. There was a nuclear threat, but nobody thinks the Russians were too serious. The Berlin Crisis of 1961. Strangely enough, did I say nine? Was this a big deal? Yeah, it was. Oh, look at that. Oh. This, what, what's this the is, gist of it? This eventually went uh, turned into the uh, the wall. All oh, right. The Western Zone was doing much better than the Eastern Zone yeah. in Berlin. Uh, the Americans, as soon as they started having control over their zone, they turned it into a capitalist showpiece. All the best consumer goods were there. You know, if right. it was today, you'd be able to get the iPhone 6 there today, and right. we're not going to get it for another three years. Interesting. Just as a show of... They just, it was just a hot cinder in the eye oh, right. of the Eastern Bloc kind they, of thing. It was just, it was an in-your-face. It was. Wow. So everyone in the Eastern Zone just took the opportunity to slip across. Right. There, was, there was no way to stop it. So Khrushchev went, we can't allow this. I think at one point, four million uh, East Germans crossed in a 10-year period to get out. So you know, it was it was a horrible funnel, and right. so the Iron Curtain fell. And well, that's that's almost it exactly. The, the Soviets threatened the Americans, "Get out! We want to turn this into a a free Eastern Zone with East uh, with uh, Berlin under a Soviet aegis." Well, and, and Berlin was deep into East Germany, like it's about 160 had, kilometers. Yeah, yeah, that's a weird Germany. thing. Cause they had this corridor, right? They had a vehicle corridor. Yeah, yeah interesting, yeah. and air like, corridors as well. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the map. Yeah, you see that West, West Berlin is far into Eastern Germany. Yeah. It is quite a ways. It's confusing. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, if there's one thing about the Cold War, it's confusing. The, everyone... the U.S. at that point was just being like a six-year-old, where they had something and they were not giving it back under right. any circumstances. This was the ultimate mine moment. Well, mine. Was, well, wasn't West Germany also broken up between like? 
it was England. It, all, and, the whole of Germany after the war was partitioned into three zones originally, with Britain, the United States, and Russia as the victors having control over those zones. Uh, France, as one of the huge uh, losers in the war, not necessarily in, you know... <laughs> how the war ended, but right. throughout the war, um, they kind of uh, appealed to Britain and the United States, and they received a zone as well. But it wasn't a, a quarter of the whole thing. The, the Americans and the British had to split off a third of their territory. So there were those four zones administered. Uh, eventually, the Americans and the British put theirs together and created, created Bizonia. Bizonia. Yeah, it sounds awesome. like it's from Futurama. <laughs> oh, that was actually sounds like there's a lot of sexual exploration. Bizonia. Yeah, it's, it's a lot great. of sexual exploration going on. Yeah, no, I was about to say it's like open-minded ladies all <laughs> over there. And uh, the problem was the Soviets. Their zone was the eastern part of Germany, which was all agricultural, and the Allied side was all the industrial side. So the Russians, when they were trying to get their reparations, could only take you know, turnips and potatoes. Whereas on the, the other zones, they were getting whole factories and shipping them back to France and, and you know, ripping up railway lines and moving those back to France. Mm. So the Russians felt very short changed from the beginning. What, um, they don't like turnips? They, <laughs> beets would be their thing, I guess. <laughs> the city of Berlin was also partitioned into four zones. But there was freedom of movement within the zones initially. Right. Uh, in fact, in Berlin, there was freedom of movement within the zones until 1961 during the Berlin crisis. When um, the Iron the Curtain thing. fell, the Iron Curtain fell. It started off as the uh, barbed wire curtain, right? Yeah. on the first day, and then and people uh, were just running at the barbed wire fence there's and, some, yeah, and getting shot. There's, getting, there's footage of a, of there's a young famous, man, I believe it is, yeah. or a young woman, uh, running and getting uh, curtain uh, clothes clothes lined, clotheslined, clotheslined by the um, barbed wire as she's making a break for it, or yeah. he's making a break for it. Yeah, and they, there's footage of people being shot as they're, like, running for the line as well and, and like, dying on the barbed wire. And I've seen Absolutely. some pretty heart-wrenching kind of scenes. And right? eventually there was uh, the buildings along the edge. People were jumping out of windows. Yes. Yeah. Well, people had walls put through their home. Yeah. Because like a portion they're... of their home was in West Berlin and a portion of their home was in East Berlin. <laughs> uh, people went to work in the morning and could never go home in the evening. So families were split when right. the wall went up. Right. Uh, as they began to build what, what they on the eastern side called the anti-fascist protection barrier. Anti-fascist protection barrier. That's a, awesome. It's a mouthful. It's an awesome mouthful. It is a great mouthful. So were they, they, they then saying that... Those Soviets the, have four words for everything. But then the intimation is that it's the U.S. who controls West Germany are the fascists. Right. It, this was a wall to protect people in East Berlin. I'll protect them from... To, to protect them from what was on the other side, which was the fascist Germans and their American capitalists. Uh, so this is like putting a fence through a cattle field and saying it's the anti-cattle wall <laughs> because, like, <laughs> Germany were the fascists, yeah, and then you beat them, uh-huh. and then you put a wall through the middle of their capital yes. and go, the ones on the other side are still are fascists, the fascists. <laughs> even yeah. though we won. Yeah, absolutely. That's revisionist history. It went... Crazy hot at that point. Uh, Kennedy had nuclear forces on the alert. They were considering tactical nuclear weapon options. Uh, tanks were mm. drawn out of their loggers on both sides and brought right up to the barriers yeah. facing each other. Um, the Russians, I guess you could say, blinked first. Uh, it got to the point where when things started cooling down, one Soviet tank backed up about four meters and yeah. stopped. I think that was there was some kind of agreement that, there that was they an agreement. said, we, would accept we won't this. back off. But you back off a little, and then we'll back off a yeah. little. Yeah, and the Americans backed up, 
the exact amount. Yeah. I don't know if anyone was out, you know, with a with a yardstick measuring <laughs> right. the distance, but it was. I would like to have seen that. It was quite seriously, you know, we move a step, you move a step, yeah. we move a step, and they back yeah, away. Yeah, but who would have taken? Who would have been the country responsible for the yardsticks? Probably Canada. Canada would have had to come out <laughs> with the yardstick. And, and we hadn't uh, gone metric yet, so it wasn't yeah. a meter oh, stick. Yeah. 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 So, uh, sorry, what number did you give that out of 10? I'd give that a, well, I might have said a different number earlier, but I'm, I'm going to change it to an 8 now. Okay, fair It's an 8 fair now. Enough. So, so far, the random, uh, the random roller has been pretty much <laughs> pretty spot close. on. <laughs> well, what about the Cuban Missile Crisis? Oh, that was definitely a 9, right? Oh, I got a 10. Yeah. Oh, I'd say. Uh, Although, if we're only doing one to nine, I should re-roll. That's as close as we're going to come. Okay. Yeah, it was. Gonna it come. was as, probably as close as they. Came. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Soviet war in Afghanistan. <laughs> I got a four here. Yeah, weird. you know yeah, what? I'd, g- I'd give it a four. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Madness. The, yeah. The, the complete... You know, really, my work here is done. <laughs> yeah. I, uh... You know what, Joe? Uh, your iPhone should do the podcast from now on. It, uh, uh, yeah. It's obviously much more accurate than you are. I'll just I'll just create a <laughs> random comment generator. Yeah. It's the Joe app. <laughs> we'll do uh, a, a Joe robot. I'm thinking your phone should run for office. It's got a better record than... <laughs> Joe didn't do his research. Don't worry. There's an app for that. The conflict was expressed through military coalitions, strategic conventional force deployments, extensive aid to client states, espionage, massive propaganda campaigns, conventional and nuclear arms races, appeals to neutral nations, rivalry at sports events, and technological competitions such as the space well, race. This is uh, actually harkens back to uh, to our sports injury episode that... A water polo game between the Russians and the Hungarians oh. right after they'd invaded Hungary in 1956. <laughs> right, right. Like, <laughs> like literally hours after they invaded, uh, they played a water polo match in the semifinal, and yeah. uh, it was the blood in the water match. Yeah. The, there, there was almost no aspect of life the Cold War didn't touch for right. over 40 years. The U.S. and USSR fought proxy wars of various types in Latin America and Southeast Asia. The USSR assisted and helped foster communist revolutions opposed by several Western countries and their regional allies. Some they attempted to roll back through subversion and warfare with mixed results. Uh, like Vietnam. Yeah. You know? Korea. <laughs> Guatemala. Chile. Grenada. Grenada. Afghanistan. To alleviate the risk of a potential nuclear war, both sides sought detente in the 1970s. What is detente? Detente was it was more it's like a French thaw. Word. It's a, it's a thaw in the relations between. Uh, I think it's French for powers. relaxation. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, and it was a period where they decided, uh, you know, Stalin's died now. We don't have an insane person running the show on the Soviet side. We hope. We hope, and um, and I, I know some historians that would give me a lot of grief for calling Stalin insane, but uh, <laughs> um, so they decided to talk was basically what it was. It was the first real attempt at statesmanship between the two sides. Well, what, do you, what were they then doing when they had all those little like, uh, you know, Potsdam conferences and whatever when you, they had Potsdam was sitting on bef- the table? They Potsdam just, like, was before the end of the war, or sorry, Potsdam was right after Germany capitulated. Oh, so technically so, we weren't warring yet. Well, it depends on when you say the Cold War started. There's, there's huge scholarly debate. Right. It, it's not like... You know, December the 7th, 1941, the Americans can say we were in World War II at that date. They could probably pick the time of the day as well. Uh, there's historians who argue quite, I think, forcefully that the Cold War actually began in 1917, uh, correction, 1919, right after the First World War. That's quite a discrepancy of Yeah, that's time. Yeah, it <laughs> is. The Russian uh, Civil War was going on with the Whites and the Reds, the nationalists uh, attempting to defeat the Bolshevik government. And Western governments, including the United States, sent troops to assist the Whites against the Reds. 
Mm-hmm. And the Soviets never forgot that. Oh, so it is a, it's a compelling argument for that. So Potsdam is probably just Stalin sitting around being totally passive aggressive and like, oh, yeah, let's totally work together. And, well, I mean, a lot of people <laughs> say Yalta, which was the second of the three conferences just before Potsdam and Potsdam, were when the great powers divided up Europe with who would have influence over their spheres, their political spheres. Um, Britain was utterly ashamed because they entered into the war to defend Polish freedom. And um, in, and, in these conferences, Poland was given to Russia after the war. So Britain actually had no reason to be in the Second World <laughs> yeah, War. You know, you think about that for a second. You're like, oh, yeah, the, what started the war was the invasion of Poland. And then at the end of the war, you're like, oh, God, just... Take Just Poland. take it. Just yeah, take it. It's, yours. it's not. It's not worth it. In a, going in a to private bed, conversation a between Churchill and Stalin, I, I think they actually used a napkin. Churchill wrote out which countries Russia would have domination over, and it would be like you know Poland. You have ninety five percent, and the West has ten percent, and Greece. We get total. Ooh, that's bad math. Yugoslavia, right you get this, and. Um, Stalin looked at it and just put a big tick on the page, and that was it. That was, oh, nice. and the Americans hadn't been notified that uh, these two leaders were making these decisions for them. Do you think what remains of the Germans are standing back and going, "What the hell? <laughs> you could have just let us have it. Yeah, yeah. You could have just if if you're giving it to them, why didn't you just give it to us, and we wouldn't have had this war? This well, this is a worldwide lesser of two evils. They're tearing a page out of our book oh. in. Before us and retroactively. <laughs> a lot of German. Um, In time travel terms. They went, wait, Lesser of Two Evils, that's a great idea. Doctor Who sent them back, boom. I, I'm going to have to do some research on that. I, did, <laughs> I, I didn't know about that. that I was, was expecting a Doctor Who jibe from. Uh, the I, I resident let you, you had it. Who. It was good. Nice. Okay. Um, a lot of German, um, certainly senior military officers uh, and, and certain politicians didn't understand why the West was attacking them. They, they were going, can't you see who the real threat is here? It's the Soviets. Um, there are quotes that General Patton said, we fought the wrong enemy. Mm-hmm. We should have just, once we defeated the Germans, we should have just kept on going. That is certainly uh, in the movie Patton. It is definitely in the movie it Patton. It is definitely in the movie Patton, where he quite, quite loudly, as uh, <laughs> you know, uh, George C. Scott does everything loudly, uh, and maybe Patton did as well. But if I learned anything from Princess Bride, you should never get involved in a land war in Asia. <laughs> Guess that's true. So there's two. There's two schools of thought on that. <laughs> that's <laughs> from the man. There's Patton, yeah. and uh, Wallace Shawn. <laughs> Pretty much the two greatest military strategists of our generation. <laughs> so, in the late '80s, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev introduced the reforms of Perestroika and Glasnost. Who knows what those words mean? Uh, perestroika, Perestroika, Dormammu, Dormammu. Dormammu? I think it's Dormammu. Oh, Dormammu was a Doctor Strange villain. Okay. Oh, that's right. I knew I recognized it from somewhere. I like that. Uh, Perestroika was, uh, it's like a kind of falcon. Right? <laughs> that's, well, no, that's what happens when a falcon grabs something. It's oh. just Perestroika. It's... Perestroika is the little tricycle that Paris Hilton had when she was a kid. It was made out of diamond. Wow, those are both terrible. Thank it's you. a Fabergé trike, is that what yeah, you mean? Yeah, Fabergé trike. <laughs> they are Russian terms, obviously, from yeah. the sound of it. There was perestroika glasnost, as you said. Perestroika means restructuring. Yes. And glasnost means thawing. Or uh, I've got openness. 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 Yeah. So the restructuring was restructuring of the Soviet political system and their economic system, which was in utter disarray. There was, right. was very little left. Wait a minute. Communism doesn't work? 
Well, depends you, who's running the show. If you call what they had communism. If you call what they had communism. Okay. Yeah. Stalinism doesn't work? <laughs> nope. North, North Korea seems to be making it work just fine. Everything looks good there. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, a lot of uh, people, even in the academic field, will say that uh, Reagan took advantage of the Soviet economic situation to, to bankrupt them with overspending on the military. And a lot of people like that because it's a very simple two-second answer to right. how this mm-hmm. massive global confrontation ended because the russians couldn't keep up they couldn't the arms keep up race. yeah uh, the uh, arms race was being handily won by the u.s you will hear a lot of people certainly if you google it you'll see a lot of people in uh, chat rooms uh and forums yeah. who say uh, reagan bankrupted them with star wars that was the whole master plan to the star wars program was to right. simply bankrupt the soviet union that doesn't take into account that uh, gorbachev from his early days in the party had said we need change there's something very very wrong right. here but there was a tipping point yeah, and that was probably under Brezhnev's times in the 70s. They realized their economy was dead. It, yeah. it was it was stagnant. Yeah. The workers used to have a saying on the uh, automobile construction lines, uh, we'll pretend to work as long as they pretend to pay us. <laughs> 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 so they had these shoddy consumer goods in small amounts. So basically they were dead. It was just taking a while for it to happen. Like The corpse was still was, twitching. So so really yeah. America didn't need to waste their money on Star Wars because it probably they probably would have bankrupted anyway. Well, but Reagan did get to stand at a press conference and announce a program called Star, Star Wars, Wars, which yeah. is a strategic pretty, defense initiative. It's yeah. pretty awesome. Like just being able to stand up there and saying, we're going to throw a couple billion dollars at a program called Star Wars. And there's, there's, I'm not a, a Reagan fan by any stretch, but there's, there's no doubt Reagan believed in the program. He believed it would work, and he thought, how, how could it be crazy to have every human being on the planet minutes away from death, and I want to build something that will save us all, protect right. us all. Mm-hmm. So he thought this was just wonderful, and he couldn't understand the destabilizing um, aspects to that program. Or he probably could have understood he just wasn't interested in, in that aspect of things. <laughs> he really just wanted to smile and talk and shake hands and, and uh, sit down with Gorbachev. Well, the whole thing with mutually assured destruction is that any difference in technology, like when Absolutely. the Russians introduced the anti-ballistic missile... The Americans went bananas. They're like, what are you doing? Yeah. This The whole idea where, of mutual assured destruction is now unbalanced and you're Robert risking McNamara, real the, war. The Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and, and Johnson went to the Russians and went, you, you could be causing nuclear holocaust yeah. by having these anti-ballistic missiles. And the Russians are going, excuse me, it's an umbrella. Yeah, we have it's a, a right, defense system. We have a, a right to protect our yeah, citizens. It's not an offensive weapon. And, and neither side could make the other side understand what they were talking yeah. about. Um, Glasnost, because we've, we've drift off here, was, let's start talking right. with uh, our opponents. And that was basically the end of the Soviet Union in 1991. Yeah, they pulled the flag down on uh, Christmas night, I believe it was, or Christmas Eve. Oh. Santa was there. And that was it. And up went the Russian flag. And uh, Who knew godless communists actually appreciated uh, Christmas holidays? Well, f- the Soviets were finally good little boys and girls. Yeah. So Santa <laughs> brought them peace. Oh, they got off the naughty list for the first time. That's right. Uh-huh. So that is a brief but awkward summary of the Cold War. <laughs> Now, we've already done episodes on radiation, space warfare, air disasters, explosions, submarines, brainwashing, and the Vietnam War. Does anybody know where the term Cold War even came from? Yeah. I actually don't know this. It was actually first turned by George Orwell, strangely enough. In English. It was a Uh, French term before that. Oh, okay. But used very rarely. He was the first person to bring it into the English language. Right. He had an essay called... Le Le Guerre Fromage. (laughs) The the cheesy war. That's a war I can get behind. (laughs) Uh, He wrote an essay uh, published October 19th, 1945 called You and the Atomic Bomb. Uh, And he basically talked about 
uh, how the nuclear proliferation would create a Cold War environment of mutually assured destruction. He didn't use that term, but but basically how now that you've got nuclear weapons, you're unconquerable. So you'll be in a permanent state of, quote, Cold War with your neighbors. Okay. is Does this make Orwell like the greatest futurist that has ever existed? He was like, pretty he insightful. Keeps, he was pretty switched on. He just yeah. keeps calling it over and over and over again. Like... Yeah. He knew that uh, there was going to be a year in between 1983 and 1985. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew but Orwell? <laughs> he knew pre- that pigs were going to start talking any day now. Yeah. We're, he we're almost predicted genetic there. engineering. He, yeah. was, he was ahead of the game. And when we do, it's going to be the pigs who take over. I, I, my money's on Dolly the sheep. Some bacon is more equal than others. Mm-hmm. And in the future, we will have ep- uh, episodes most likely on uh, espionage and spies. We'll probably have a missiles episode. Nuclear disasters, biological warfare, chemical warfare, probably Stalin in Evil Jerks in History. I would think yes. so. I think oh, he's yeah. going to make the he list. Would, uh, he would have to be. Yeah. So yeah. there's a bunch of stuff we're not going to talk about. Or we'll touch on, but yeah. not elaborate necessarily exactly. on. So, Alan, you've been speaking pretty knowledgeably on this subject. For what? a firefighter. Yeah. You're a firefighter <laughs> by trade. Were you a spy by night? Firefighter by day, spy by night. Uh, although I am a firefighter, I started in the military, which began my interest in the Cold War. I served in the dying days of the Cold War, 88, 89 were my first few years. So you were prepping to shoot Ruskies? Uh, well, I was a firefighter, but I did serve on a fire base. Prepping to save Ruskies from infernos. Yes, right. that's that's almost exactly what it said in the manual when I signed up. <laughs> <laughs> the base I served on, what, what caught my interest in it was uh, I served at a Canadian Forces base in eastern Canada called Bagotville in northeastern Quebec. Bagotville? Bagotville, yes. Like baguette. So delicious. Like, oh. Well, it's bagot, B-A-G-O-T, and uh, it has something to do with sticks with knobs on the top. I thought it was going to be, <laughs> that's where all of, our, uh, all of our grocery baggers come from. Bagotville. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. Huh. You are on fire today. <laughs> I am most definitely not. I need a firefighter to put me out. <laughs> if you hang on to that picture, I'll, in a second I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Uh, the, the base in uh, – I, I arrived there in 89. Uh, in 1984, my base was the second last base to have its nuclear weapons removed. We had used the CF-100 uh, Voodoo at the time, and they were armed with nuclear-tipped rockets. The Americans had a small station on the base um, where they maintained control and servicing on these nuclear-tipped rockets that they then put on Canadian planes to send up. Uh, in the event of a Soviet invasion. So the building was still there when I was there. The nuclear weapons was gone, were gone. It was off-limits. It was called the X-Hut. Uh, and the building just absolutely fascinated me. On the map there, you can see it. It's, uh, so we're obviously going to put this picture on the website at causticsodapodcast.com. I'm giving away government secrets here. I mean, it was a disused building. But uh, but the X-Hut, that sounds like kind of the guest house at uh, Xavier's School for Gifted Children. The X-Hut. The X-Hut. That's where, that's where Cato Kalin stayed. So that was where arming and, and maintenance was done. Huh. On uh, on the uh, the weapons. Um, also on our ba- on our base was what was called a QRA, a quick response alert hangar. It had uh, four F-18s on twenty four hour standby with crews to launch them, pilots, and their purpose was to intercept Russian so- or Soviet bears aircraft that would come in over Greenland. And then doodle- well, a plane would come in and they would drop actual bears. Is that no, why no. they call them that? <laughs> That's right. That's in- where the polar in- bears come from. Invasion by bear? By that- polar bear. By Russian polar bears. As we bears. learned in our bears episode, that could be pretty nasty. Yeah, put shoots on them and just let them go crazy. 
we thought that it was human encroachment into polar bear territory that was causing them to show up and attack people, but it was really Russians dropping. It was out. a commie plot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was their MK Ultra. They were driving uh, bears insane. LSD addicted bears were yeah. parachuted into Canada. <laughs> um, so that that watching these these fighters scramble to go intercept these bears and just nudge them. Well, they wouldn't nudge them, but they'd encourage them to depart Canadian. So it's like a Top Gun thing. They'd fly upside down over them, give them the finger, <laughs> take a picture with take a Polaroid the camera. Yeah, exactly. Right. All right. So. Upon leaving the military, I uh, went back to university. I've since done a master's degree in history, hmm. um, two bachelor's degrees as well, one in history. And my focus was on 20th century history. My thesis, uh, about a third of it was devoted to Cold War in Canada. Oh, nice. Um, and many of my undergrad subjects were specifically Cold War related. But nothing interesting happened in Canada during the Cold War. <laughs> nothing <laughs> interesting happened in Canada. Uh, they did find the nuclear weapon that was lost here. So apart from that, oh, nothing mm-hmm. was interesting here. Are we just going to walk over that? Where where did we find the lost nuclear weapon? Was BC, it, northern that, BC. Oh, that was the plane crash? Was it was it? a plane crash, That's yeah. Right. What's called a broken arrow. We talked about that in our live I show. I think you did, yeah. There was a little bit of uh, LSD brainwashing experimentation went on here. Mm. We talked about that in the great brainwa- detail in you the brainwashing did. episode. Dr. Cameron, the evil Canadian doctor. There was a lot of chemical warfare manufacturing and experimentation, especially in Alberta in the area of Suffield. Oh. In fact, uh, without... That's why give, the beef tastes so good. That's why <laughs> it tastes so good. Without giving any names away, because uh, I don't want to get anyone in trouble, I have friends that are still in the service who, uh, on uh, infantry exercises in Suffield, have had to report to the medics because they've had burns on their exposed skin after crawling through oh, certain areas on the base nice. that are where they've buried the, oh, uh, the chemicals. grody. Mm. <laughs> Well, what part of the Cold War would you like to talk about first? Perhaps really quickly why the Cold War started. I assume it was because a bunch of jerks didn't agree with each other. That's the question is who the jerks are. That it, was the, uh, it was the cold stares across the table at these conferences we were talking about. It was uh, somebody got snubbed. or They were at the urinal together and one guy refused to make eye contact. And from that point forward... 40 years of i got to write that one down. Across, that's, that's a good one. I bet that hasn't been... Uh, one guy refused to make eye contact? That's the good guy. Oh, There's a dissertation <laughs> there's in there somewhere. There's the rule. You don't make eye contact at the urinal, man. Maybe that's it. Maybe in Soviet Russia, you make eye contact to know, hey, it's okay. Yeah. We're, we're safe here. It's a cultural misunderstanding. And then, and then the North Americans were like, dude, you don't make eye contact. And so they're there, and they're both freaking out that the other guy's not doing what they're supposed to do. And bam, Cold War. It was just a cultural misunderstanding. Yeah. That's Russia it. is non-homophobic. Uh-huh. And the West is homophobic. <laughs> totally. That's absolutely it. And That's now we see down. why we have to be accepting of all orientations mm-hmm. and genders and everything. Because we don't want this to happen again. You heard it here first, Soda Jerks. That's how it went down. One of the, the more orthodox, perhaps, theories on what caused the start <laughs> of the, uh, the Cold War. <laughs> the Soviet Union had, or sorry, Russia at the time, originally, had been invaded twice in the 20th century from the West, both German ones. In the previous 150 years, they'd been invaded three or four times, beginning with Napoleon and, and ending with the Soviet invasion. So Stalin looked uh, to the West as a, as a vector for a threat. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he looked at the Eastern European countries as a potential buffer zone. Right. Which he would need to lock in by making them into vassal states to defend the Soviet borders. This sounds completely reasonable, actually. <laughs> it absolutely like, does. Like if somebody keeps unless coming you in... live in those countries, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> unless you live in those countries, exactly. unless yeah, it sounds great. 
Unless you're a buffer. <laughs> Unless you are the actual human shield exactly. that he's decided to use. Be reasonable. <laughs> Listen, these punks keep coming through your yard to spray paint my house. Yeah. So, it's so I'm to just going to take all your houses and put up walls and make sure nobody can come through to my house. Yeah. Well, when you're, when you're the leader of a country with, you know, 100 million people. Yeah, it's um, the largest country in the world at that point. It was, and yeah. it certainly is in territory to this day. Yeah. You know, as far as a leader goes, your responsibility is to protect your people. Perhaps the comfort of people in another country isn't your primary yeah. thought. <laughs> so he uh, he started securing this buffer zone. To the West, it looked like this is a expansion expansionist communist plot. Domino they, theory. They kept talking about revolution and spreading the revolution and our ideas will spread and take over the world, which is quite a frightening thought. You combine that with exactly, as you said, containment and the domino theory. What's the domino theory? Theory Con- that dominoes is actually a fun game? <laughs> yeah, in theory, that's in true. In theory, <laughs> dominoes is fun. Well, that's how unfun the dominoes game is, is that they had to figure out some way to actually make fun out of it rather than playing the game. You have to stand them up and make them all fall down. That's more fun than the game itself. <laughs> and that takes hours to set up and a minute to enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> They never had the uh, the mahjong theory, because <laughs> that's way more fun. You know, that's where uh, the fear was: was that if one co- country became communist, then all the neighboring countries would become communist. Oh, like an fall. infection, yeah, like a like, cancerous infection, like a, spread like a disease. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, Eisenhower announced to the American public in 1954 the concept of the domino theory, but it had been their integral thinking that got them into the Korean War in 1951. Mm-hmm. All we have to do is lose this one little piece. Right. And, and for a while, it looked quite true. I mean, after Vietnam, Cambodia, you, you know, they started seeing, wow, these, these countries can flip. I mean, they saved it with Korea as far as, as uh, the Western opinion was. We stopped the advance there. But um, it was their dominating theory for the bulk of the Cold War. Yeah, which is funny because it doesn't really necessarily make sense. Like if you're actually, if your philosophy is that communism is an inferior system Mm -hmm. and that's why we need to fight against it because it's bad for people, Mm -hmm. it's bad for freedom, it's bad for democracy, it's bad for people, then can't you just trust all these other countries not to adopt a bad system? They're not smart like Americans. Yeah, it's that whole colonialist thing that like dominated Western thinking for the last, oh, I don't know, couple thousand years (laughs) we need to look after these people we need to tell them what's right the last still again it's not uh you know as as people we we love to seek out very simple answers to things and of course that isn't the complete answer george uh, marshall who was a general who who led american forces in the second world war created what was called the marshall plan which was the american funding of european restructuring after the war yeah and the americans funneled gobs of money and technology equipment grain they sent you know missouri mules to help on right. farms yeah and he realized Is people turn for something missouri mules mule. is, is that a euphemism for something it's like a wet willy <laughs> <laughs> Not the or dreaded the, Missouri or the mule. dreaded Rear Admiral. Um, uh, and Truman at the time went, we, we fully understand here that revolution is bred by poverty yeah, well, and unhappiness. Because that's what happened after World War I, is they, they absolutely decimated the German people, and that paved the road for Hitler to take yeah, over. And that's what they weren't doing in the Second World War. That's right. The, the Russians actually wanted the, the Germans, after the Second World War, stripped down to a very um, pre- industrial yeah, like state utter capitulation they, they would just be you know hunters and gatherers basically <laughs> and they will never be a threat to humanity again loincloths 
hunting mammoths. So there would have been this giant like post-apocalyptic state right in the center of Europe where it was like all Mad Max and spear chuck. That'd be like a good tourist destination for Fallout fans. <laughs> would have been uh, Teutonic Park. Teutonic Park. <laughs> yeah. it, it would have been much more successful than Euro Disney, I think. Yeah, I, I think so. The French would love to go to it. <laughs> They, what, do you think they would have had dioramas of, like, previous German incarnations, right? We're living in a country that's the finest place on earth. But some folks don't appreciate this land that gave them birth. I hear that up in Washington they're having an awful fuss. Cause communists and spies are making monkeys out of us. The bureaus and departments have been busy night and day. They're figuring out just how we gave our secrets all away. And Congress has appointed a committee, so they said, to find out who's American and who's a low-down red. They call them up to Washington to speak for Uncle Sam. But when they ask them what they are, they shut up like a clam. I wish they'd take and put me on the witness stand today. I'd yell so loud, old Stalin could hear me all the way. I'm no communist, and I'll tell you that right now. I believe a man should own his own house and car and cow. I like this private ownership, and I want to be left alone. Let the government run its business, and let me run my own. Our government is bigger than it ever was today. The more they hire to work for it, the more they have to pay. Our public servants should be proud and honest, you would think. Instead of taking bribes and dressing up their wives in mink. The taxes keep on going up, of that there is no doubt. But still they just can't take it in as fast as they dish it out. Our national debt is monster size and growing every day. Our children's children still unborn are going to have to pay. Our dollar used to be the soundest money on this earth. But now two bucks won't even buy a good old dollar's worth. Unless we stop inflation and take care of what we've got. The communists may win the fight and never fire a shot. I'm no communist, and I'll tell you that right now. And I believe a man should own his own house and car and cow. I like this private ownership, and I want to be left alone. Let the government run its business, and let me run my own. Stalin gave a, a speech indicating that capitalism and communism were diametrically opposed and could only result in war forever. There was no alternative. Oh, that's not incendiary speaking. Not right? at that, all. That's not poking the tiger with a stick. Tickling the dragon's tail. <laughs> Churchill, who actually, uh, the irony was, as soon as they won the Second World War, he was voted out of office in the election uh, and didn't get to negotiate the uh, the full peace. Oh. But he was still a powerful senior statesman, influential. And in a speech in Fulton, Missouri in 1947, I Missouri? believe Missouri again? Missouri. What the hell is Churchill doing in Fulton, Missouri anyway? Lecturing at a university graduation. He gave his famous sinews of speech, uh, sinews of uh, peace speech. It's also known as his Iron Curtain speech. Okay. Oh. Where he coins the phrase Iron Curtain. And that happened in Fulton, Missouri. Fulton, Missouri. I 1946. Just... 
some of the most amazing speeches in the Cold War were Come made in the most innocuous. <laughs> so ironically, uh, the peace in the uh, Pacific was signed on board the USS Missouri. Oh, wow. which was where Truman was from, Missouri. So, so I don't know. Maybe there's a conspiracy going on. So here. what I you're saying is. is what Alan is saying, everybody. Missouri caused the Cold War and also solved it <laughs> with mules. With mules, <laughs> but Missouri bookended the Cold War. In his speech, he uh, clearly delineated us, them, Cold right. War. They're evil. We're not. We have to defend against them. The Soviets immediately said, "What kind of inflammatory language is this?" Even though Stalin had given a speech about (laughs) we're going to be at war forever. And that was essentially the starting point globally. Canada has a slightly different starting point that a lot of historians consider. We were trying to catch up? Well, we were ahead of the game. Oh. Uh, Just because we're extra cold up here? Yeah, we we understood the mindset of the cold (laughs) civilization. Canadians are on the front edge of cold anything. (laughs) So cold war, we jump in. Cold cold shoulders. (laughs) Cold Cold showers. <laughs> the Canadians, the Cold War probably began on September 5th, 45. Ooh, uh, an actual night, an a date? An actual date. You could probably get the hour, uh, although I've, I've never bothered to research the hour. But for us, there's a start to it. In Ottawa, uh, a Russian cipher clerk named Igor Guzenko, who worked in the Soviet embassy, put 109 documents in his briefcase and walked out the door of the embassy. Then things got a little strange for him. He went to the RCMP office, and the RCMP officers on duty, when he said, I want to defect... And by the way, Russia's been running a massive espionage network in Canada and the West for years. Okay. Including studying your atomic bomb secrets. And the RCMP went, move along. Move along. All right, buddy. Move along, nut job. Out the door. Yeah. (laughs) So we've got poor people to hassle. Exactly. (laughs) So he left there. Then he went to the Ottawa Journal newspaper. And this is in the evening. Uh, but the night editor wasn't on duty. So whoever was in filling in for him said, can you come back tomorrow, buddy? <laughs> so he left. That's very Canadian, by the way. So then he went. Hey, why don't you come back tomorrow, eh, when the boss is here? <laughs> and he went to the Department of Justice, knocked on the door, but there was nobody on duty that night. So he's he left. just picked the wrong time. He's left effect, wandering around the streets of Ottawa. Meanwhile, his family's at home in their apartment. Public service so, announcement. If yeah. you're going to defect, do it in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Monday at 10 a.m. Yeah. Uh, probably not at lunchtime either because everyone's yeah. going to be out at lunch. Yeah. Just, exactly. you got to make sure everybody's had their timmies and yeah. they're all alert. <laughs> so he's, he's walking around the streets of Ottawa with a briefcase full of explosive uh, documents. Well, somebody who's lived in Ottawa, it, no one will hassle you on the streets of Ottawa. It's a, after 5 p.m., that town time. is dead. Yeah. They roll up the sidewalks, yeah. yeah. He started making his way back to his apartment, worried about his family. What he didn't know was the RCMP had taken it slightly seriously, and they had put an agent they had available on the case, and it was Sir William Stephen, the man called Intrepid, the most famous Canadian spy. Yeah. Um, so he followed him around, basically sat in a park bench watching the apartment. Uh, Guzienko went home, put his family in the apartment across the hall, and then spent the evening watching through the keyhole as Russians showed up and ripped his apartment apart, tossed it, looking for information, and were eventually kicked out by... The RCMP. I was going to say the landlady. (laughs) (laughs) So the next day, the RCMP came and got him and said, we're really interested in what you have to say here. (laughs) And that's when he began to expose a massive spy network involved espionage in the Manhattan Project. Not all of it's been revealed completely, but it looks like he gave them the name of Klaus Fuchs, which was the top Soviet spy in the Manhattan Project. He basically gave the Russians the atomic bomb. So this was announced in the media. Canadians went bananas because we assumed we have no part in right. global affairs really and we find that we were a very hot spot 
Um, so that was kind of the Cold well, War start. Of, it's kind of, I mean, Canada's actually in the perfect position to be kind of a hot spot in the Cold War because yeah, we're, we're sort of geographically right between America and Russia. Yeah, yeah. and we're friendly. Everyone likes us. Well, so, everyone. And, yeah. <laughs> I don't what know if that's true anymore. No, not anymore. We're not even known as peacekeepers anymore. Yeah. In the in the fallout from this, a Canadian MP was arrested. Uh, Fred Rose was found to be a Soviet spy. Oh, and uh, was like an, arrested. He was he was actually an elected official. He was an elected member of parliament. Did he become Sitting. a spy before he became an elected member? You know, I haven't done he... any full research into his career, but I do know he was elected in office and put in prison while in office. And he was a member of the uh, Communist Party. He well, was he a was member. A, of the... He was the only Communist, communist par- member yeah. of Parliament. It's not a big stretch. I, mean, oh, I was about to say, there's a there's a spy somewhere in the House of Commons. <laughs> There's one. Could it be the only member of the Communist Party? <laughs> well, that, that's hiding in plain sight. There's no way. <laughs> yeah, the way the communist is actually going to be spying because we knows we're going to be watching him. Ultimately, um, Guguzenko's contribution was uh, with the 109 documents and the information he was able to provide. Was uh, he worked with the Americans with a, a decryption program called Venona, reading Soviet cables. Uh, and they were able to expose probably two of the biggest spies, Klaus Fuchs, the nuclear spy, and Kim Philby, who was very high up in British intelligence uh, and generally the uh, the character that you would see in uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. The Riley character was Kim Philby. Yeah, and uh, that was dealt with in the book Spycatcher as well. Yes. The, in Spycatcher, he talks about how critical the RCMP and the Canadian intelligence was to them finally exposing the fact that and that was Guzenko's information. Yeah. Well, shall we talk about the space race, the race in space? From 1957 to 1975, uh, competition between the USSR and the U.S. for supremacy and space exploration focused on attaining firsts in space exploration, which were seen as necessary for national security and symbolic of technological and ideological superiority. Technological equals ideological or ideological equals technological? It was just uh, it was it was just a PR game, right? It was. In theory, if you have something that can launch missiles from space, then your ideology is better. Before the <laughs> other the person, first, that was the first take on it. But essentially, once everyone was able to get satellites up, the space race was still going. Right. Uh, it became a matter of prestige. And this began with uh, the launch of the Sputnik One. Actually, it probably began a bit earlier than that. I know in one of the emails I read from Kevin, he, he's familiar with the Soviet-American race for German scientists. And that's probably where the space race began. Um, as the German state collapsed during the Second World War, yeah. the Soviets moved in from the east, the Allies from the west, and they were gobbling up German spa, uh, scientists. As oh, they was, it, was, it was like a, uh, a technological hungry, hungry hippos. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. The Allies got to Pinamunde in Holland, which was the rocket base where the, the VU rockets were launched at the UK. Uh, so they got that technology. They got Werner von Braun, who was arguably the, the best German scientist and for rockets. And one of the best, like, Bond villain names possible. Werner, Werner von, von Braun. He appeared in a lot of, uh, he appeared in the Disney um, uh, series on space. He was explaining how rockets work. It's very interesting to see ah. him in uh, in those early color, early uh, Disney propaganda films. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, they were really cool. I actually have the set because mm-hmm. they have all this amazing animation about basically the space race and basically right. landing. You know, Werner von, von Braun had all these ideas about colonizing the moon and how that he would did. be practical and stuff like that. And so you have all these Disney animations. 
Uh, some are more drawings and animations, but it's really interesting. It's a great, uh, it's a great. Wow, set. I didn't even know that existed. And you have Werner von Braun explaining all these things. In uh... he was uh, an incredible idealist, a visionary, a dreamer. Uh, when he launched the first V rocket, he remarked to one of his colleagues, "It worked absolutely perfect, except for landing on the wrong planet." <laughs> <laughs> Which I think that's that's kind of a great line to hear from a Nazi you know, scientist <laughs> yeah. who got citizenship in the states rather quickly. Mm. Um, so once once they had their uh, their collection of German scientists, um, they began their projects. The Americans are often thought to have been very slow and behind because on uh, October fourth, nineteen fifty seven, the Russians launched Sputnik one yeah. into orbit, uh, and everyone looked at the Americans and went, "Hey, you know, you're supposed to be the world's leader in technical things. How can you be behind the Russians?" Uh, recently, some documents have come out that show that Eisenhower was was absolutely pleased that the Russians had beat them because the Americans were already working on a spy satellite concept, and they didn't want to be the first ones to launch into space to militarize space. So as soon as the Russians launched, now the Americans could do whatever they wanted, no, okay. yeah, they and the their... Russians couldn't say, couldn't point a finger. Yeah. Right. However, the Americans' first attempts were just dreadful well all sort of chronicled in the movie the right stuff right? which is brilliant because that's actually real footage yeah. from the first launches the, the russians they had the advantage everything all their launches were done in secret no one knows if sputnik was their first launch or their 101st launch right mm. but we just saw successful footage but that's what there's like just spawned... a bunch of frozen dogs up in space <laughs> who knows but, when they got there but that's also what spawned the uh like the the phantom cosmonaut sort of conspiracy theory movement that we're surrounded by an umbrella of dead cosmonauts yeah lost in orbit yeah, that then there's no confirmation because there's absolutely no paperwork or like because it, it's all it was all yep, done super correct. super top secret. But there's just all this sort of like anecdotal evidence that suggests that there were a number of cosmonauts lost. Right. Like yeah. the people would be in the program and then they would like disappear, and you know you you could see them in photos, but they're like you know, the names aren't attached to the photos, and like they're just kind of like wiped from history, right? Right, and the, and the. The rigorous adherence to academic um, process that conspiracy theorists follow have, right. have given us these wonderful uh, l- glimpses into well, what might have been. I'm sure there are some dead cosmonauts, and I'm sure that the Russians didn't want to, people to know that cosmon- that some cosmonauts died because they don't want they didn't want to expose the failings of their program or whatnot. Well, I mean, we do know of Russian cosmonauts that died. They yeah. uh, that was was revealed publicly as it happened. Yeah. We also know about Leica, the dog that that didn't make who it. Who lasted back. about two days? <laughs> yeah. So you would think, or Leica. Yeah, you would you would think that they would that they dog, wouldn't put up the people until after they put the dog up. That dog did not Leica that trip. No, he did not. A <laughs> she, she did not. A sorry, pardon me. Yeah, Leica was Sputnik two. Um, so the Russians had Sputnik one, Sputnik two up. Sputnik two weighed five hundred and eight kilograms. And they got it into orbit with a living uh, animal in it, a dog. It, Laika was supposed to uh, have about 10 days to survive. She only lived about two because part of the thermal insulation broke and she uh, died from uh, heat. I would have thought she would have died from the, the cold. Forgot to put up in the uh, doggy bags. <laughs> there was no little robot no, she to had pick up water. the poop. <laughs> Asphyxiation. <laughs> that, was, that was Sputnik 3 just trailing Sputnik behind. Sputnik 3. <laughs> it's a scooper. Yeah. Her capsule actually came down a few years later, so like is no longer up there. Mm. But the Americans were their plan at that time was we're hoping to get this one and a half kilogram satellite up, and here the Russians are putting up five hundred kilogram satellites with living animals in them right. and orbiting the Earth. So the Americans had their first launch attempt, the Vanguard rocket, uh, on December sixth, nineteen fifty seven. The rocket rose about four meters. 
before it exploded. Okay. So fell almost to the ground. The space. Yeah. Almost the space. Yeah. The the media loved it. It was uh, coined as Flopnik. Was yeah. In all the newspapers. Kaputnik. Kaputnik. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dudnik was another one. The Americans were absolutely humiliated. But it was Werner, a good. It was a good time to uh, to be a coiner of headlines. The whole Cold War was a great time to be working in newspapers. <laughs> Werner von Braun and his German team had a rocket ready to go that hadn't been used. So theirs was put on the launch pad uh, just a few days later, and the Americans got their one and a half kilogram satellite into orbit. That would be Vanguard One. Yes, Vanguard One was the first one. It's still up there, actually. It's the oldest artificial satellite still in space. There we go. And it went up on a Mercury yeah. Redstone rocket, which is what the Americans put their first two people into space in. Um, mm. Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom went up on ballistic non-orbital missions on the same type of rocket. But the, Amer- the Russians, once again, Yuri Gagarin changed everything. 12th of April, 1961, Gagarin was launched, completed one orbit, returned to Earth. Uh, he's, if you see a picture of him, he's a great-looking young guy, big smile. Can turn into fire. Can turn into fire. <laughs> <laughs> Cosmic rays, yeah. That's right. He, uh, even the Americans who wanted to hate the thing went, this guy's just great. The problem was the Americans now realized the Russians could put nuclear missile or nuclear bombs over their heads, orbit them over, and drop them on them. They yeah. could just rain them on them. Yeah. This launched a massive panic in the United States. You commented on the Disney films. Yeah. Those were part of the propaganda to get kids into engineering. All right. Universities were flooded in the United States with kids going in to study engineering because we have to catch up in technology. Right. Uh, very quickly, the Russians had the first spacewalk, the first woman in space. Their docking programs were superior. The Americans were just caught completely off guard in this race. Kennedy, interestingly enough, uh, even before the very first American was put on a ballistic flight, he announced the moon race. Right. We, we choose to go to the moon and do the other yeah. thing, not because, it is, uh, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. That was a lot of moxie. They, they hadn't even put a person in space yet that yeah. had a chimp up on a yeah. ballistic flight. <laughs> Some may argue is It's more... all just dead weight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but very quickly, once, once the Americans dug in, they started having successes. They completed the Mercury program to huge hullabaloo, as you recall in the, yeah. uh, in the film, The Right Stuff. And they, they were ahead from that point on. By the time Apollo came up, the Soviets had no chance of ever catching up. The Soviets, once the Americans made the moon, they abandoned all their moon exploration projects because they're like, they've, they've deflowered the moon. Who, who needs to go there now, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sloppy seconds. <Yeah. laughs> exactly. By the time the Americans had Apollo 8, where they orbited the moon uh, yeah. at Christmas time, in 68, I believe it was, uh, it was pretty clear the Russians had no chance. The, the Russians were working on a, a rocket to go to the moon called Zond. It was just this massive, massive, gigantic behemoth that made the Saturn V rocket look look tiny in comparison. But its first test launch, it exploded on the launch pad, and that was the end of the, their yeah. program. They, they realized time to throw the hat in. Now, didn't the Americans, before they managed to catch up and beat them, didn't they have some pretty crazy ideas on how to, like, get ahead of them? I have one called Project A-119. That's the one I'm thinking 1958. of. A-119. Okay, that sounds innocuous enough. What's, I'm not going to so spoil crazy it by summing that? it up, but it's great. I've started calling it the Sarah Connor Project. <laughs> I'll tell you why in a little while. A top-secret plan developed in the late 1950s by the U.S. Air Force. The aim of the project was to detonate a nuclear bomb on the moon to boost public morale in the U.S. after Russia took an early lead in the space race. Hold, wait one second here. Sorry. Nuke the moon. Nuke the moon. Nuke the moon. To increase morale? That's right. That's right. How? What? Huh? They were well, going to drop the bomb right on the Terminator between yeah, day exactly. and night. Yeah, exactly. So you could get maximum visibility yeah. They Earth. figured Americans love fireworks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it be the greatest fireworks show it. 
ever. I've been calling it Nuke the Terminator, hence the Sarah right. Connor project. I get it. Oh, At the it. time of the project's conception, newspapers were reporting a rumor that Russia was planning to detonate a hydrogen bomb on the moon. According to press reports, an anonymous source had divulged that the Soviets planned to commemorate the anniversary of the October Revolution by causing a nuclear explosion on the moon to coincide with a lunar eclipse. A correspondent Soviet project did indeed exist, but differed from the scenario reported to the press. Started in January 1958, it was part of a series of proposals under the codename E. Project E-1 entailed plans to reach the moon, while projects E-2 and E-3 involved sending a probe to take photographs of its surface. The final stage of the project E-4 was to be a nuclear strike on the moon as a display of force. (laughs) So this is just this is another just in your face moment. It's like it's a thing where it doesn't actually start a nuclear war, but it's just totally, you know, kind of flipping the bird at your yeah. Cold War yeah. opponent. It was reported that a failure to hit the moon would likely result in the missile returning to Earth. So that was one of the problems. <laughs> that was a drawback. The, the boomerang effect. Yeah. <laughs> Damn you, gravity. <laughs> the project documents remained secret for nearly 45 years. Scientists initially considered using a hydrogen bomb for the project, but the Air Force vetoed this idea due to the weight of such a device as it would be too heavy to be propelled by the missile which would have been used. It was then decided to use a small, lightweight, lightweight warhead with a relatively low 1.7 kiloton yield. All bark, no bite kind of thing. All you need is that cloud. Yeah, yeah. The, the Hiroshima weapon was 13 kilotons. Yeah. Oh, okay, so actually really Comparison, small. Comparison, yeah. The warhead would be carried by a rocket toward the unlit side of the moon near the Terminator, where it would detonate on impact. The dust cloud resulting from the explosion would be lit by the sun and therefore visible from Earth. Uh, the project was eventually canceled, seemingly out of fear of a negative public reaction and the risk <laughs> to the population should anything have gone wrong with the launch. No shit. <laughs> An- another factor was the possible implications of the nuclear fallout for future lunar research projects and colonization. No uh-huh. shit. <laughs> like, the fact that these didn't come up the first time they discussed it. Like, how come there was nobody they around the did. table? Oh, maybe? And they just went, ah, screw it. Let's do it anyway. I, well, I'm sure what happened is you've got your, you know, middle management or upper management going, we got to nuke the moon. These The Soviets <laughs> are going to do it. we got to beat them there. And you've got all the scientists going, that's crazy. All this stuff will happen. Prove it. Yeah. And so they researched it. Yeah, there's a few meetings in the Cold War I would really like to have been in the room. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. yeah. Just, uh, I know you're not going to be doing it today, but the one blue peacock. Yeah. The chicken-powered landmine. <laughs> Stay tuned for that on our Mines episode. No yeah. kidding. I would love to have been in the room for that. You know who leaked, who was the first person to leak this uh, project information? Well, it was, I don't think he leaked it, but it was because of research for right. his biography. Well, the existence of Project A-119 remained largely secret until the mid-1990s when author Key Davidson was researching for the biography Carl Sagan, A Life. Sagan's involvement with the project was apparent from his application for an academic scholarship at the University of California. In the application, Sagan reveals the titles of two classified papers from the A-119 project. Oh, so Sagan was actually one of the... Yeah, he was in on it. He was uh, part of the team responsible for the mathematical projection of the expansion of a dust cloud in space around the moon. All right, so he didn't necessarily come up with this idea or even think this no. idea was a good idea. They, he was part of the team that actually He was a huge advocate of marijuana. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that would mean he's against using nukes, man. Dude, or don't blow like, up the moon. The moon is pretty. And shortly after the publication of Carl Sagan to Life, Dr. Reifel, the project leader, broke his anonymity and wrote a letter to the journal Science confirming that Sagan's activity had at the time been considered a breach in the confidentiality of the project. Rifle took the opportunity to reveal details of the studies, and his statements would later be widely reported in the media. 
Rifle's public admission of the project was accompanied by his denouncement of the work carried out, with the scientist noting that he was, quote, horrified that such a gesture to sway public opinion was ever considered, (laughs) end quote. I, that's exactly how I see yeah. it. You've got like crazy, like like Doctor Strange Love esque, insane <laughs> generals and leaders, and then the scientists going, "No, no, you can't do that." And they're like, "Look, just make up the plan and find out what would happen. Use your science. Do but what you say." There were probably scientists who went, "Can we do this?" Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I, I want to see if we can do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've got a I've got a budget now I, to find I, that out. Yeah. How much money do you want? If we want, not that we would do it, but it's if good. we wanted to. That's a good Carl Sagan impression. Could we? <laughs> oh, yeah, is that spot on? Can I do the rest of now the show? Now say billions and billions of stars. Yeah. Billions and billions <laughs> of stars. He's even wearing a turtleneck. There was a turtle by the name of Bert, and the turtle was very alert. When danger threatened him, he never got hurt. He knew just what to do. He ducked. <laughs> What we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. Tune in next week for the exciting conclusion to Cold War on Caustic Soda.